today I'll tell you about um, this question that is really the driving question of my lab. How does Toxoplasma initiate infection in a new host? So Toxo is famous, okay? It's like the king of parasite as far as I'm concerned. It's one of the most successful infectious agents with a known prevalence of over 30% in the world. And in this audience, I think that when I last checked, it was about 34 people. So 10% of you may have toxoplasma in your brain and you don't even know it um, because the parasite just is asymptomatic um, for the most part, unless you become immunocompromised. And its name, toxoplasma, comes from the Greek toxon, which means bow, and plasma, which means form. So it's essentially um, a bow-shaped parasite, okay? And with my neighbor, I call it the banana parasite. So toxo exists in different developmental form, okay? And the three infectious stages that are capable of infection in humans are the sporozoites, the tachyzoites, and the bradyzoite. And we're gonna talk a lot about these stages um, throughout the talk, and I'll come back to it. Welcome to Biologists Being Basic, a podcast where we talk about basic research, why we care about it, and why you should too. I'm your host and resident basic biologist, Robin King. Each episode, I'm joined by fellow scientists as well as non-scientist friends to ask questions, talk science, and have fun. This week, we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Pascal Guitton, for a two-part series. In part one, we talked to Pascal about her research looking into the life cycle of a fascinating parasite called Toxoplasma gondii, which in infected humans can cause a condition called toxoplasmosis. In part two, we have a candid conversation about Pascal's career in science and the importance of diversity, inclusion, representation, and equity in the STEM disciplines. It was a truly wonderful talk with an amazing scientist, mentor, and advocate, and we hope you join us for interesting science and some great discussions. Helping me interview Pascal in today's episode is my B3 co-host, Paige. Hi, I'm Paige Haas. I'm a graduate student at UCSF in Nevin Krogan's lab. I'm studying E3 ubiquitin ligases in HIV infection. And joining us and making sure we stay on point will be non-scientist expert human Gina. Hi, I'm Gina, the Director of Communications and Events at the Quantitative Biosciences Institute at UCSF. And finally, we are really excited to introduce our special guest, Dr. Pascal Guitton, whose primary research focus is on Toxoplasma gondii. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. And um, like you said, I'm Pascal, and I am an assistant professor at California State University in East Bay. And uh, my lab does focus on Toxoplasma gondii, and I'm Looking forward to talking about it. It's the king of parasites, you know? Okay, thanks guys. Let's get started. You study Toxoplasma gondii? Yeah, that's how <laughs> I say like it. I'm going to pronounce it. I'll just pronounce it like different ways every time. Um, but so you, you, you study Toxoplasma gondii uh, and specifically it's different life cycle stages. Is that correct? So that's correct. I, I don't actually know very much about this particular parasite or parasites in general, but I do know that it goes through different developmental stages um, and that uh, in anything other than cats, it reproduces asexually. Um, is that the stage that you study? Are you studying all of the stages? <laughs> so I essentially study three stages of toxoplasma. The the, the three that are capable of infection in humans, okay? So just to give you a little, I'm going to try to be brief with that, uh, the life cycle of toxoplasma. Imagine you have a mouse and then the parasite goes and gets in the brain of the, of the mice, right? And the form of the, the developmental stage of the parasite that is in the brain of that animal is called the bradyzoite. And brady means slow because this form of the parasite divides very slowly. And you're absolutely right, Robin. The division is asexual, right? So it's basically a clone of, of itself. One cell becomes two and so on. And then the cat will um, eat the mice. And what would happen is the parasite will get released inside the gastrointestinal, in, inside the gut of the cat and in that environment 
they will come out of their cyst because they are protected in the brain of the cat by a cyst wall. So the, the, the acid in your stomach, the, the, the enzyme in your, in your, in your uh, intestines, right, helps to degrade that wall and then the parasite come out. When they come out, they go quickly inside the cells of the cat intestine. They just go in there and then they start dividing and they switch. They go from that form, the bradyzoite form, they switch to another form called the merozoite. And the merozoite divide for couple couple divisions and then they switch. Some of them become sex cells, right? I mean, uh, some of them become female sex cell. So, and then the others become male, right? So you got, now get the gametes, just like in human. Male, daddy gives sperm, mommy gives ovum, right? And then they fertilize. And the result of that fertilization is the zygote. And the zygote gets uh, embedded into a wall, which in this case, it's called the oocyst wall, okay? So uh, then that oocyst, right, gets shed every uh, when the cat essentially goes poo-poo, right? And so the cat intestine, the reason why they call toxoplasma the cat parasite, it's because it is only in the gut that the cat is able to undergo that sexual um, cycle. It's only in the cat that they can say, hey girl, what's up? You know, and then have sex and then uh, 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 um, get, get released like that. And I want to say, uh, Dr. Laura Noll from University of Wisconsin just uh, recently identified this particular enzyme called Delta-6 desaturase or D6D that is only present in cats. We don't have it, but only cats has it. And it turns out that this enzyme, if you remove it from the cat's intestinal tissue, Toxo cannot undergo its sexual cycle. Now, when it gets out, now you get the oocyst, unsporulated oocyst, so you have a little zygote in there. And in the environment, under conditions that we do not know, the zygote becomes the sporozoite. So you can think about spore, sporozoite. So they stay, they can stay in the environment for, for months and months. As a matter of fact, we store them in, uh, in sulf um, sulfuric acid in the lab and you take them out and they're still, they, they're still fine, okay? They're really, really infectious. Like, you put them in your mouth and then you infect it. And actually, it's that form that was killing the sea otter along the coast of um, California a couple of years mm -hmm. ago. And so anyway, you eat it or drink it, right, because you didn't wash the, the food, the food, the food got contaminated with cat feces, right, and you ingest that. So when you ingest that oocyst that has a sporozoite in there, or you ingest the tissue cyst that comes from the muscle that has the bradyzoite in there, they get out of their cyst, they infect the intestinal epithelial cells, and then they switch they switch to the next one called the tachyzoite. And tachyzoite, you think of tachometer, tachycardia, fast, 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 because they replicate like crazy. They just divide and divide and divide. And then in all these division, they are in somebody's body. I'm not going to sit there. You're going to come and take over my body, right? Your immune system will come in and toxo, the tachyzoite will be like, oh, oh, wait a minute. Let's just go into like protection mode. Then they switch back to the bradyzoite stage. And then they insist, and then the bradyzoite will stay in the muscle, in the skeletal muscle, so your heart, your skeletal muscle, and in the brain. And they will stay there forever until you die. Because there is no, um, and you don't even know they're there. See, this is, how, oh my God. this is how amazing they are. So what I study, or what I'm trying to study, is to understand this, this switch at the beginning, right? What are the, the molecules, the factors that allow the sporozoite to switch very quickly to tachyzoite or the bradyzoite to switch really quickly to tachyzoite and vice versa, right? They are biologically distinct, metabolically distinct, uh, functionally distinct, right? Bradyzoite to initiate infection to persist, 
tachyzoite to disseminate the infection so they can really fight with the host and do whatever. And then the sporozoite to basically be in the environment to allow that survival in the environment. So this is why Toxo is basically great and infected everything. You mentioned a lot about brain cells, like that Toxo can get into brain cells. And that brings up a lot of like cringe and then also a lot of questions. Um, so like, I wonder, does that affect like cognitive function or behavior? Like you mentioned that you probably won't even know it's there. So I imagine it's pretty asymptomatic, but I wonder if like you knew in other organisms if it affects. So in, in humans, right, there are some studies that suggest that toxo, there's correlation between toxoplasma infection, chronic toxoplasmosis, and some other diseases like schizophrenia and all that. But I think um, we still need to do a bit more work to, to have more solid data on that. But what is clear, though, uh, what we really have, I, I think, strong evidence for is that chronicity, right, chronic toxoplasmosis in mice does alter the behavior of the mouse, okay? And uh, this was done by Vias et al. Um, and then got that confirmed and fervored and uh, dissected. So the idea is this. You have a bunch of cats, okay? One group you give them toxoplasma, and then you let toxoplasma go to the brain, whatever, the cat is, I mean, the, the, the mice is fine. And then you have another group that is uninfected, so your normal mouse. And then you let them go in an arena. In one spot of the arena, you have bobcat urine, right? And then in another part, you have rabbit urine. What do you think is going to happen? The mice are not going to go to the bobcat urine. <laughs> Oh, um, it's like, I know the answer to this one. <laughs> like the mice that are infected with toxoplasma actually are less afraid of cat urine than the mice who aren't infected with toxoplasma. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So we don't, we, I don't think, I don't think we know whether or not it's because they're less afraid or whether or not they are attracted to it. I'm not a neuroscientist, but then I learned that the two pathway of fear and attraction are kind of different in the brain over there. But one thing is for sure, they spend more time in the cat urine quadrant when they have toxo in their brain compared to when they don't, right? And so evolutionary, the, you, you can imagine that the, to have sex essentially is to ensure diversity, the, you know, the genetic diver, um, diversity in the genetic pool, right? To, to, to help ensure the survival of the, of the species. And so evolutionary, it would make sense, right? That toxo would want to manipulate its host to get to its definitive host, which is the cat. Because in our brain, it is stuck. So if, toxo, if you have toxo in your brain, you will need to go on a safari somewhere, get eaten by a big cat, lions, tiger, for toxo to go out and have sex. That's punishment to stay in you. Toxo doesn't want to be in you, you know? Is, is this why I love my cat so much? Like, is this why I'm obsessed with cats? Um, necessarily i don't i don't think so right i mean but is this what is this where cat crazy cat lady came from that's that's what that was the underlying yeah essentially that that was that but i don't i don't think it's a uh... hard to like approve that kind of thing with a human being right like it you're more likely to be infected if you own a cat and i, I don't think there's a correlation there um, I, I, I don't, I don't think that if you have more cats, you are more likely to have toxoplasma. Oh, really? I, I, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe I should double check that. I know. It's like one of those things where it's like, I, I do wonder how you would prove that though. Like if toxoplasma caused you to like a cat, cause you're not going to like purposefully infect someone that doesn't like cats and be like, do you like this cat more? <laughs> Yeah, like you you wouldn't know if the toxo showed up before or after they got the cat. And the, 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 the reality, too, is that, you know, when the cat is infected, it will shed. There will be a pre-pattern period that is um, yeah. not that long. But then the, the cat will, uh, will shed millions of oocysts every day for that, um, for that period, okay? And then doesn't shed anymore. That's it. 
right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a, a kitty that has toxoplasma that had it, they're not shedding all cysts anymore, right? Toxo doesn't really do much to, to the cat. I mean, they get the brain and all that. Uh, the, the brain, they get the lifetime infection, but the cat are just fine, okay? Compared to the mice, that's not really true. So after the after those cats have toxo the first time, can they get infected? Or are these cats, like, you know your cat's not going to give you toxo? <laughs> like, right, right. Do they become immune? You know it's not, exactly. You know it's not going to give you toxo unless you eat it, right? <laughs> because toxo is still in there forever. But in terms of shedding cysts, it, it's not going to happen again, as far as we know. And the other thing, too, is there is something about the pregnant woman not emptying the cat litter, right? Uh -huh. And the reason is mm -hmm. because if a, so if a woman, a pregnant woman, get infected, newly infected with toxoplasma, you know that switch that I was describing <laughs> to you, right? They'll go from sporozoite or bradyzoite to the tachyzoite. <laughs> These tachyzoite are able to cross the placenta to infect the, 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 the baby inside, the fetus. Mm -hmm. And there's serious consequences for that for the kid, right? Encephalitis. Yeah. And it's a big problem too with, uh, with uh, farm animals uh, where they get like, you, there's a lot of economic losses that happen. So there's this, there's this call to study this in a One Health, um, with a, in mm -hmm. a one health um, framework. So does, toxo, does, does the toxoplasma always go to the same spot in the brain? Is it like a specific cell type that it's interested in? Or is it just kind of, it randomly goes to a spot in your brain and sometimes it's okay and on occasion it goes to a, a spot that it shouldn't go to or? No, um, I, don't, I don't think there is preference for the left or the, the, the right or the front or whatnot of the brain. We just know that toxo infect neurons and that is another beautiful thing about toxo. Well, beautiful. It's another um, really cool thing about the biology, right? Toxo doesn't need a receptor to get into a whole cell. It brings its own receptors, right? Mm -hmm. Its own invasion machinery. So it comes in, sort of, you know, interact with some protein on the surface, but it's not very specific. Like HIV has to bind to a specific receptor and get in. Mm -mm. Toxo is like, oh... Look at you. You are a cell. You have a nucleus. Good. I can go in. Then it comes. It it moving along. Oh, it's a podcast, so I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'll describe. So the hand was like moving through um, a, what would be kind of like a lipid bilayer. Yeah. So so Togo <laughs> comes in, and then it it attaches, and then it flips. It literally goes like, and then it flips, okay? And you can think about a little opening at the tip of the toxo, right? And then from there, it literally injects a bunch of protein directly inside the whole cell. And some of them are going to come back, hook themselves in the cell membrane. Meanwhile, other protein that were, that came, that were secreted, that were put out by toxo, will go around toxo. Right, so you have the toxo membrane have their own mem have their own proteins, and then the whole cell now got um, embedded with toxo proteins. The toxo protein finds it, they find each other, they hook, and then toxo essentially like pull itself inside the cell, and then uh, bring the the membrane with it and pinches off, and then they created their little house inside your house, inside inside your cell. It is can you, amazing. Can you see these? Like, can you oh, see yes. toxoplasma? Like, wait, wait, with the naked eye or only with oh, the no, microscope? Oh, no, 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 with the microscope. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you cannot see. It's with the microscope. How, yeah, how terrifying. <laughs> Very. <laughs> but it is so beautiful to see. I mean, and you know what is funny? Uh, you know, toxo is part of this family of parasites called the epicomplexan. Okay, so they include all the members of that family, of that uh, phylum, that group of parasites that cause disease in human, in animals, in chicken, well, chicken are animal, we are. Animal. Malaria is one of them? Exactly. Yeah, so malaria, malaria uh, Plasmodium falciparum, that's the, 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 the parasite's name, causes malaria, right? And they 
like red blood cells. And mature red blood cells don't have nucleus, okay? And malaria can just go in, just using the same mechanism that Toxo uses, right? They have that in common. Just go in. But if you put Toxo in presence of a red blood cell, for whatever reason, the absence of that nucleus causes Toxo to get stuck, right? So it can definitely inject its protein yes. in and, and start the process. But then it just gets stuck and you see its little butt on the back there and then the thing is inside. It's just it's crazy. <laughs> and that's it. So, They're just stuck there. And it's, nope, if you cannot wow. go in, you die. So when they get stuck, do they, they just stop and yeah. game over? They game over. They, they, they came back out. So if you want to halt Toxo in its tracks, you just need to give it a bunch of cells without nuclei. <laughs> like, is it wow. specifically um, the nucleus or is it like, can Toxoplasma infect dividing cells? Does it need to have like an intact nucleus or could it, is it something about the DNA <laughs> itself? I mean, like, I don't think we know, or at least I don't know, right? It, it's We know that Toxoplasma can infect virtually any nucleated cells in the body and they can virtually infect any warm-blooded animal it is a generalist it is an amazing amazing parasite in terms of its co-evolution with with all with all the hosts right it has mastered that that oh i can infect you i can infect you i can infect you so dogs too but i mean should we be worried when we're picking up dog poop like on the sidewalk? Not quite, right? Not quite. I mean, the the, the dogs they have the I mean they get can get infected with toxo, but they they don't shed osis. Yeah, just don't eat the dog. Don't eat the dog. <laughs> don't eat it. Right. So the cat, the, the 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 part, the form of the parasite that is in the poop of the cat, is only the cat that can make that. Does that make sense? The dog could eat that, right, and then get infected, yeah. but they will never. They'll never shed it. That's so crazy because I've seen many dogs eat cat poop. So like, you know, I wonder like if they could contract taxosplasmosis. If that poop was infected, then they would get infected, right? But it would it would only remain in their brain. They wouldn't shed. Yeah, yeah. So, so interesting. I'm so fascinated by this like nucleated cell that the yeah. toxoplasma can get itself the first step in and not the last step in and i just want to do an experiment to find out what it is <laughs> we'll just knock out all the human genes and find out which one it is that's doing this that's so crazy doxo does kiss and speak what i know i've heard of this i in college i've heard about this yeah toxo will you know will go infect cells whatnot but there are certain cells that in which you will find toxoproteins but you don't find the parasite you don't find dead parasite pieces or what like it it secretes all its proteins in and then it leaves exactly it secretes oh everything it's almost like Super and then rude. it goes it is rude right and there's like, um, yeah, work by uh, it, this work started in in my in my old lab with uh, Dr. Bufroid and um, Dr. Anita Koshi, and she has this beautiful, beautiful system to to study this, and it's it's so gross to like kiss and speak. So I wonder the cells that uh, have the like toxoproteins, do they present them in any way for like the immune system or? Like, does Toxo have a way of marking cells that it's already infected and then perhaps Toxo won't come back to that cell that's expressing these proteins? I mean, we actually don't really know uh, the, the purpose of, these, of this kissing and spitting, yeah. but we just know, actually, um, there was a student, um, um, Suchita Rastogi, in uh, the Bufrod lab who actually did her thesis, a PhD thesis in that way, she wanted to know whether the difference between an infected cell with a parasite in compared yeah. to a cell that has been spat in, right? And, uh, and you know, so there are definitely some differences and it, it's super cool biology, um, but yeah. 
I do they know like all the proteins that get spit in and are they the same as the like could we take those proteins and just inject them into a cell and be like okay what happened <laughs> I want to venture out and say that they did do no they did they did RNA sequencing so mm-hmm. they looked at the host gene genes but I'm not sure whether or not they looked at um, the, 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 whether or not they did proteomics, right? Because mm-hmm. with proteomics, you could you 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 should be able yeah. to to pull them out. But at least we know that there is um, there is one protein that gets spat in, and it's uh, toxophilin. Uh, because when Anita did uh, did her work, she fused it, she fused a known protein that gets secreted with 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 some marker and then it will light up so we know that that one gets through um so toxophilin oh it's a it's a proteins that toxo has that it just i see oh yes okay so what so it spits out it spits out into the cell and then in the cell you'll find toxophilin exactly but it's coming from the parasite and then you will you may you will not see parasite in there but also, if you see parasite in toxo, toxo, um, toxophilin may um, also be there. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's the natural thing. What is unnatural is how come toxo spits inside a cell and goes away, and whether or not does it spill all of its content? Because here's yeah. the other thing. I'm telling you, this parasite is amazing. Here's the other thing. The 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 the. Some of the organelles, right? This, there's this organelles in, in this this little um, sack in Toxo that looks like a baseball bat. It's called the rope tree, and the content of this sack, right? The protein in the sack are the one that gets that gets packed, right? Is that it? Into sure. that get uh, released into the into the the host cell. Okay. The thing is, if Toxo releases when it does the spitting, if it releases all of this protein, that means it will be unable to invade the next cell, right? Because the content of these proteins are only produced and only made when the parasite is inside the cell and dividing. So what happened to the parasite that are spat, right, inside the whole cell is something that I don't think we know. Right? Does it die? Yeah. Or does it just secrete a little bit to take control of that whole cell and then goes and infect the other one? Because there's evidence that if you have uh, a placental cell, I mean placental cells like next to each other, if Toxo infect this one cell, one of the cell, the neighboring cell have that behavior change, right? It will, um, I think it induces apoptosis in the neighboring cell. Aptosis, aptosis. Oh, oh, cell death, cell death. Oh, cell death. Oh. Safe cell death, basically. Okay, so so causes- there's a lot of different ways that cells can die. Um, the safe way for a cell to die is apoptosis. So it basically it receives a signal and then it goes, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> so it safely kills itself so that all of its contents don't go where they're not supposed to go and hurt their neighboring cells yeah because if you know imagine that you your heart is in your is in your body right imagine that one day your heart comes out of the body it literally sticks out everyone around you is gonna be like oh my god that's why is her heart out right so that's a that's a dangerous signal and so what robin was saying is that those uh, that cell will kill itself quietly so that it doesn't call the immune system to come and say, oh my God, that's not supposed to be out right. here. You it's know? like, and hey guys, I'm just, I'm going to go now. I'm going to go now. Exactly. <laughs> I'll yeah. see you on the other side or whatever. Okay. Yeah. But that's really interesting. So uh, do they know if the toxoplasma, the toxoplasma parasite itself is actually secreting something as it leaves the environment and goes into the cell? Or is it actually its neighbor cell that got infected? that's signaling its neighbors like, you guys should die. <laughs> no idea, right? So this is when, you know, you can think about, oh, maybe the kiss and spitting is for that purpose, right? 
mm-hmm. and the then it goes and has time to do this because you know that cells talk to each other. So if a cell is infected and send a signal to the cell next door, the cell is going to develop uh, resistance, right? Well, Toxo is like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Let me just monitor it all around here. But again, all of this uh, is speculation, right? All of these are hypotheses that, you know, I'm putting out in the universe and that I think are worth, uh, worth investigating. Um, how does Toxo control this micro environment? Yeah. Not gonna lie, I super want to study toxoplasma now. Come to the dark side. Come to the dark side. Let's do this. Let's throw those toxoplasma in some cells and see what proteins are showing up. (laughs) Did Pascal just infect us to like make us like really interested in toxoplasmosis? It's infectious. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, let's get some of these blood cells that have like half of the butt sticking out, and let's, let's see what's different. Start ex- overexpressing some genes in them and see if they can get all the way in. <laughs> it is a fun parasite to work at, to work for, and w- the the other thing that is really amazing with the host pathogen interaction, like how Toxo interact with the with the host, is that you know I told you Toxo stays in the brain for the rest of your life, right? But as as bradyzoite inside cysts, but if you become immunocompromised, right? you get HIV or you get, uh, you are undergoing chemotherapy or you have, um, you're doing heart transplants or whatnot, right? Because remember, skeletal muscles too. Your immune system is down. The bradyzoite in your brain, right? Or in your muscle, sense that. They sense the absence of the immune system. It has weakened. What do you think happens? They wake up. Yeah. They're like, let's let's go. Exactly. They come back out. They switch back to tachyzoite, and they start the whole process again. Oh my again. gosh! So when when the host is weak, when the so this is in humans too. So so a human could be could be infected with toxoplasmosis in their brain, and then and then so once they become immune uh, immunocompromised, whether you know they're going through like chemotherapy or you know some type of treatment, heart transplant, then that's that's what like awakens. The parasites. Yes. So you have this relationship where the host keeps Toxo at bay, right, in, in the brain, just keeps them quiet there. So there's this who is going to give up first, right? And when the, the you, you get uh, an, an immunocompromised by infectious disease or whatnot, then it comes back and causes havoc. This is why um, oh at the height of the HIV epidemics, when someone presents with toxoplasmosis, right, they, they will check for HIV, right, because toxoplasmosis was a corollary for a HIV infection. And so... So if you, if, you yeah. were, if you were infected and then got pregnant after infection, does that mean you could awaken the, the, the parasite or the microbes? So that, that's another... That's, that's something else that is quite interesting, right? It's um, if you are... If you are chronically infected with toxoplasma, right, and it's in your brain, whatnot, and you get pregnant, you are fine. But you will sort of need to be monitored, and essentially, most people are okay. And um, but if you get infected while you are pregnant, especially during the third trimester, then it is bad. Oh wow! Does that make sense? Yeah. Because it goes through the, like you said earlier, it goes through the placenta, and that's that's why it's really bad. It's exactly, really bad. and and the, the fetus is is sort of like small cells, and the the, the damage is, is more pronounced, right? Um, so that's Toxo. Yeah, one of my favorite, literally one of my favorite uh, moments in lab is when I have a new student, and you know, for like. A good amount of time they are not allowed in the tissue culture room so they have to go through all these um, biosafety training they have to get their blood drawn and all that and so they do a lot of cloning they work with toxogenes but they've never seen the parasite live and the first time they get to see it they're like dr g i don't see it. i'm like just look pussy and then when i say like whoa dr g is that a little thing moving oh my god is that the parasite it's so, I mean, every time it just, I'm like, yeah. So I insist 
on training them the first time. I was like, I'm going to be there and I'll train you because I want that reaction. It's, it's just so fun. I mean, I want to see them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Can we sign up? Where do we sign up? All the viruses we do, you can't see them. Like, <laughs> I'll send you some cool videos. Yeah. Like even Paige, all of your stuff that's like GFP, it's like you still can't see the virus itself. Exactly. Yeah. Toxoplasma is such a, like, some people, like, uh, my, my, my friend and colleague, Sebastian Dorito, when he stain his parasite, they are so beautiful. I mean, the colors of the, you know, the, the, fluor, the fluorophore, the colors they choose, it, it's just, it's like piece of piece of art. It, it, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful parasite. I mean... You see, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's, you, you can't say that, right? But uh, it is, it is, it is an interesting parasite to work with. I'm sold. I'm like now. I'm I've fallen in love with this parasite. Oh, <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? I know. I want to to say one little thing just for the for 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 your audience for the listeners. So, parasite is really a term to describe organism that get the sustenance, right? The, 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 the needs for, for life, the nutrients, habitat and all that from another organism and cause harm to that organism. Now, harm doesn't mean it will kill you. Harm can be, you know, it, it causes a damage to this tissue. You get a wound over here. You, you have a headache or whatnot. So this is still damage, right? And so I, I, I want you to know that not all things, all organisms that look like parasites. Not all, yeah. Are not parasite. all small microbes are things that look scary. Yeah, exactly. Not parasitic. all creepy things. Are Some are symbiotic. Yeah. <laughs> Some just don't care that you're there at all. And those we call <laughs> A them. A lot of them don't care that you're there at all. Exactly. We call yeah. them free living. You know, you have like amoeba, free living. They're just like. Bleh going around in the yeah you know i was i always wonder like what anthony van Leeuwenhoek, who was the first one to observe microbes with his little homemade microscope what he must have felt like and you know there's actually a quote where he describes it and if you don't mind i'll read it for you the same day about three o'clock in the afternoon i saw still more animalculus both round ones and those that twice as long as broad, and beside these, a sort which were still smaller. And also, incredibly, many of the very little animalculus whose shapes this morning I could not make out. And I saw very plainly that these were little eels or worms lying all huddled up together and wriggling, just as if you saw with the naked eye a whole tub full of, of uh, a whole tub full of very little eels and eels and water with the eels squirming among one another and the whole water seemed to be alive with these multifarious animalculus this was for me among all the marvels that i have discovered in nature the most marvelous of all and I must say, for my part, that no more pleasant sight has ever yet come before my eyes than these many thousands of living creatures, seen all alive in a little drop of water, moving among one another, each several creature having its own proper motion. And even as I said, that there were a hundred thousand animalculus in one drop of water, which I took from the surface, I should not err. Others seeing this would reckon the number as quite, as quite 10 times as many. Thereof, I have instances, but I say the least. My method for seeing the smallest animalculus, these little eels, I do not impart to others, nor yet that for seeing very many animalculus all at once, but I keep that for myself. I mean, this last part, it was a bit selfish on this last part, right? But, but that, 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 that feeling of the, 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 the marvelousness of it, it's just... The last part is the opposite of you showing the undergrads the microscope. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is, you know, this, this thing actually caused the, the delay, right, in, in the progress of microbiology because it was so selfish about it. 
Can you imagine? You discovered something so wonderful. I was going to say, like, what kind of friend? I know. <laughs> nope, just for me. How can you think it's that cool and not want to show everyone? I know. Like, I, when I think something cool, I just want to show as many people as I can. I get, like, a successful Western blot, and you want to be like, look, <laughs> look what I've done. And then he discovered an entire world, and he's like, uh, nope, I'm going to enjoy those all by myself. We're going to keep those under wraps for now. <laughs> Although, when you think about it, though, hey, humans, when they discover a little territory, they go and they mess it up. So it's, it's like, true. maybe I shouldn't tell them. <laughs> no, it was more selfish than, than that. <laughs> but yeah. It- um, so Pascal, your lab studies effector proteins of Toxo. Can you tell us a little bit about what effector proteins are and how you study them? Okay, so effector proteins uh, are proteins that are secreted into the whole cell or proteins that basically target um, processes in the whole cell to, uh, to, to modulate the immune response, right, to alter the host behavior, in the, the host cell behavior, like what the host would normally do to kill toxo, those proteins that the parasite has help change that, if you will. Okay, imagine Toxo as a guest, an unwanted guest, right? You have someone who comes into your house and decides that your house doesn't look good. So start moving your cupboard in the bedroom, your, uh, your kitchen, your plates in the, in the living room, and just rearrange it. And then when it's all messed up, the parasite is like, I like it now. Now you cannot do anything. I like it. And so... The, the effect of proteins that we are looking for are those that are important for initiating that first interaction of toxoplasma bradyzoite, right, with the intestinal epithelial cells. So what are the proteins that bradyzoite, when they get out of, the, and out of the cyst and get into the host, what are those factors that allow them to so efficiently go from bradyzoite to become without causing a whole mess, right, in, in, in the cell. And so the, the, the way we approach that is by reverse genetics, right? So essentially a lot of the, there, there are a lot of genes in toxoplasma whose function we do not know. I mean, literally a, a lot of them are not even found in any of the available database, only in toxoplasma, okay? And I told you also that the different uh, forms of toxoplasma, like sporozoite, bradyzoite, tachyzoite, merozoite, they are biochemically different, right? They are transcriptionally different. What does that mean? It means that you have certain genes that are expressed, that are on only in the bradyzoite, and they're, they're not on, they are off in the tachyzoite. And then you have some that are only on in the tachyzoite and off in the bradyzoite. And then you have some that are on in both bradyzoite and tachyzoite, but not in the sporozoite, right? And so the main hypothesis in the lab really is that those genes that are developmentally regulated and have higher expression level in the bradyzoite maybe are more likely to be involved in bradyzoite-mediated processes, so in, in processes that the, medi- the, the bradyzoite engages in. So, for instance, maintenance of the cysts in the brain, right? So if we are looking for effectors, then we are looking for proteins that come outside the parasite. So if a protein comes out of the parasite, it has to enter the secretory pathway, right? It has to enter through a secretory pathway, so it means that it has a signal peptide. But... The mere fact that they are high expression in the bradyzoite and they have a signal peptide that says get into the secretory pathway, they are more likely than some that don't to be secreted out. So the the reverse genetic approach is essentially saying that we know the gene, right, but we don't know what the gene does, right? And so we're going to take out the genes and then we're going to essentially look for what happened based on what we know about the biology of the, of the microbe, what happened to that process. And it's a bit, it's a bit 
it's harder, right? Because you don't really know what you're looking for. You see what I mean? So having a phenotype make it easier, at least in my mind, to, 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 so forward genetics is a bit easier, right, to test than reverse genetic because you don't know what aspect of the biology is going to be affected. And so that's essentially what we're doing. So we, we're doing, uh, we're using... Um, it's a little bit like um, if you had a bicycle and you broke a piece and then you try to see what happens when you try to ride the bicycle. Exactly. <laughs> versus you have a broken like you know how to work a bicycle and you just have something that breaks the bicycle from working you then go back and see like okay it was that the pedal the pedal is what made it not work anymore you're so good with those uh, with these analogies i really need to work on that but that's exactly it right you know how something works but you don't know what is making that thing work, right? So that forward genetics. Whereas you know what makes something works, but makes something work, but you don't know a, which part of the working thing that particular thing does. See, I messed it up, didn't I? <laughs> I think it's good. Yeah. I think I get it. No, I think I now I think I have a clear understanding of reverse genetics. Good. That, that's yeah. good. Um, so yeah, so that that's what we do. And so to, to do it, we uh, develop this um, intestinal, in vitro intestinal model of infection. And so when we get candidates that are interesting in vitro, we, we knock them out and we take the mutant parasite, we infect animals, and then we see how the virulence, the ability of the parasite to cause disease is affected, right? And then we're like, hey, we found a new, a novel developmentally regulated gene. And the yeah so it, it's fun work but you know it's it's a bit it's different the pace at which we do research at an undergrad uh at a primarily undergrad institution is very different from how they do it at the r1 right the stanford the ucsf and and all of that so it's a bit slower so for us like it could take two months to get a plasmid, right? Because you have to explain to the student restriction enzyme and all this stuff. So there's a lot of... Uh, that's so interesting. Okay, I'll sign up. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then when, you, when, you, you know, when you work on something hot, then you get scooped and you're like, oh my God, can you please not study this bit? <laughs> but it's, so it's really, I call my lab like one gene, one student, right? Because there's so many one gene, genes. One student. Like, exactly. Yeah. And so there's the... There's this sort of pipeline that when you come to my lab, you have to go through, you know, there's the cloning portion. You have to make your plasmid, you have to make your knockout plasmid, and then you come to the tissue culture, you have to create your mutants, right? And then you do the microscopy because you have to learn, you have to tag your, your protein to see where it goes, right? Because if we're looking for effector and the gene you're working on makes a protein that is stuck in the cytosol, then, you know... It's not one that we want to pursue that it's much. Exactly I mean, it may be important. There, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It may be important, but it's not necessarily our priority at the time. And so that's one aspect of what we do in the lab with the effectors. Another aspect is we're looking at sugar, like at the metabolism of the parasite. So, you know, the, the parasite stays in the brain, the brain is white, in this tissue cyst. They have to eat. They have to get energy. And there's this sugar molecule that is in potato actually it's called amylopectin we eat it we use it for as a source of energy so the bradyzoite form of toxoplasma and the sporozoite form of toxoplasma they have a lot of granules with this um, polysaccharide in there with this sugar in there the hypothesis is that this sugar they use this sugar to uh, to basically sustain this long long persistent period outside or inside your brain right and the tachyzoite don't have it at all they they have like maybe one granule here and there but it's it largely absent in the tachyzoite so here's the question how do you go from a parasite that does uh anaerobic um metabolism right where it doesn't use oxygen and has all these large amount of amylopectin, how do you go from that 
very quickly to one that does not. How does the parasite, quote-unquote, knows when to use the amylopectin? Does it get degraded? Does it get used? Does it get converted into something else? You know? And I was almost going to be a student and start answering questions, like offering answers. <laughs> like, well, maybe it's the consumption of it that it's actually burning through it so that it can make more of it. Exactly. You know, like, you know, like it, it's using it up. And then by the time it uses it all up, it's like, oh, okay, now I have to like. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, so, and we know, we know definitely that um, the proper storage and proper usage of these aminopectin are important for cyst formation. For the are important for the 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 bradyzoite cysts and, and all that, and so. But what I want to know is how does this thing get used when the bradyzoite is outside and it's infecting the cell, and how does that switch? What is the regulatory mechanism for that? Right, the the regulation behind it is really what what keeps me up at night. I think. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today in our discussion about the life cycle of Toxoplasma gondii. We hope you join us for part two, where we talk to Pascal about her career and discuss diversity and inclusion in teaching and researching biology. If you're interested in Dr. Guitton's research, we strongly encourage you to visit her website, look into her publications, and follow her at Dr. Guitton on Twitter. You can also find these links in our show notes or visit our website. We want to extend a huge thank you to every person who is doing their part during the pandemic to keep us all safe, to feed us, to heal us, to keep our daily lives running, and to help support a diverse field of researchers, first responders, and medical professionals. Thank you to every individual who is doing their part in remembering to wash your hands, and keeping up the social distancing, and wearing your mask when you're out in public. We know that times are hard and confusing, so thank you so much for doing what you can to help. We hope that our podcast can be a source of information and maybe even entertainment during these challenging times. In our role as scientists, we always aim to be as accurate and precise as possible while still communicating plainly. In case we didn't do this, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about what we said in this episode, or if you just want to say hi, please reach out to us at biologistbeingbasic at gmail.com or at biosbeingbasic on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and we will do our best to respond. If you like this episode and potentially want to hear more, please like and subscribe. We want to thank Professor Nevin Krogan, who is our boss and the director of QBI. And we want to thank UCSF and Gladstone Institutes, who are our employers. We want to thank Gina, our guest and friend and all-around awesome human being. And a huge thank you to Dr. Pascal Guitton for being so generous with her time and for joining us in today's episode and in our next episode. Thank you to Alexa Rocourt and Michael McGregor, who are our sound engineers and producers. Our music has been Catalyst and Passport from Purple Planet Music. Hi, I'm Gina, the Director in Communications. Oops, <clears throat> sorry, I messed up there. <clears throat> I, I, okay, it's hard. <laughs> I also just realized I'm not, per, it, it's Toxoplasma gondii? I say gondii. Okay. Because it's too I at the end. Gondii. I'm like, oh, I'm pronouncing it wrong. In I, don't, French, I just in don't French, know how to say gondii. Gondii? Okay. Yeah. All right, Gina, <clears throat> do you want me to lead you back in or you got this? Uh, I, uh, yeah, actually, yes, if you would like to okay. lead me back in. and. <laughs>